Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The World Economic Forum is meeting in Davos this week, and the international elite are reveling in a terrifying display of their egoism and power. Douglas Wise, one of the 51 intelligence officials who signed the letter saying that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation, has now said that those intelligence officials knew that a significant portion of the laptop story was, in fact, credible. And I interview David Leaf, Peabody Award-winning and Emmy-nominated writer, director, and producer, who is the most prolific biographer of the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. I'm Julie Hartman, and this is Timeless. Thursday, January 19th, 2023, and here is the news that you have got to know today. The World Economic Forum is holding their annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland this week. And for those of you who don't know, the World Economic Forum was established in January 1971 by a German-born business professor at the University of Geneva named Klaus Schwab. And it was originally called the European Management Forum, but it changed its name to the World Economic Forum in 1987. Its original mission was to provide a platform to resolve international conflicts. But over the last 25 to 30 years, it has transformed into the world's premier networking, branding, and policy-setting meeting every year. The current meeting has attracted 2,700 political, business, academic, and media figures from over 130 countries, including over 50 heads of state or government. The World Economic Forum has become an annual ritual every January where these international elite celebrate themselves and consecrate their mission of setting the rules for all the rest of us. Everyone watching this program knows that I have a conservative or traditional-leaning worldview. But when I report on news events in this first part of the program every day, I try to dial that down and give you the news as straight as I can. But it is just impossible for me today to deliver this news without injecting some harsh editorial commentary because some of the statements from this week's meeting in Davos are truly terrifying. First, Vera Genuva, who is a top European uh, Union bureaucrat, in a panel on a speech was defending certain codes in Europe that criminalize hate speech. And she remarked that she thinks that laws making hate speech illegal will soon come here to the United States. Let's hear what she said. Well, we need 
the people who understand the language and the case law in the country, mm. because what qualifies as hate, hate speech, as illegal hate speech, which you will have soon also in the U.S. I think that um, we, we have a strong reason why we have this uh, in the criminal law. Uh, we, uh, we need the platforms uh, to simply work with, with the language and to identify such cases. The AI would be too dangerous. You notice that she smiles and she gestures to the Americans on that panel who are just totally silent. This statement that she is making is coming in the wake of some really terrifying uh, hate speech restrictions in Europe. For instance, a woman in Norway was put in jail for saying that men cannot be lesbians. And the cowardice of just allowing Ms. Genova uh, to make that statement is just unbelievable. Americans don't realize the only reason that we can even talk about or toy around with the idea of amending free speech is because we have free speech in the first place. It's this creepy, ironic paradox where many of us are using our free speech to subvert free speech. In another part of this meeting, John Kerry, the former Secretary of State and Democratic nominee for president and champion of climate change action who rides around on a private jet, said, quote, when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, a select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives, are able to sit in a room and come together and actually talk about saving the planet. These comments from Davos this week are just stunning in their arrogance, condescension, and lack of concealment of these individuals' idea that they are the elite, that they do view themselves as the select, as the anointed ones, as Tom Sowell would say, and that they feel that they have the unique right to make decisions that all the rest of us peasants have to follow. I would like to ask Carrie. These select group of people that you are referring to, that you yourself are among, who were you selected by? By what basis and by what criteria? And who are you accountable to? Yesterday on this program, I gave a primer on the history of modern India. And one of the things that I mentioned is that India right now, with Prime Minister Narendra Modi, is experiencing a nationalist movement which is one of many nationalist movements around the world. We see President Bolsonaro in Brazil, President Trump here in the United States, Georgia Maloney in Italy, the late Shinzo Abe led a great national movement in Japan and his party continues to do so. Obviously, there's a big national movement going on in Taiwan. The list goes on. So much of the reason, this is what I said yesterday, why we see the revival of these national movements is because of these World Economic Forums and Paris climate uh, meetings and G20 meetings and all of these groups of unaccountable elites who were not voted to be there and represent their countries at these symposiums, but nevertheless get to sit there and celebrate their divine providence. Finally, the last statement that you need to know coming from Davos was actually said by Klaus Schwab, who, as I said a few minutes ago, was the uh, founder of the World Economic Forum himself. On a panel, someone asked Mr. Schwab what he thinks 
European countries should do about the fact that a lot of people don't trust elites. And his answer was quite short. It was, quote, technology and the Interpol. For those of you who don't know, the Interpol is an international police organization that is headquartered in France. So Mr. Schwab's answer is, well, we have to monitor what people are saying online through technology and even rig their news feeds to give them the information that we want them to see. And then if they continue to hate us and and pose a problem to us, we call in the Interpol to arrest and prosecute and imprison them. Again, it is just terrifying how he and others at this World Economic Forum feel that they do not have to cover up their true feelings or their agendas. They have no uh, sense of needing to conceal what they are really up to. Mr. Schwab didn't say we elites need to earn the trust of citizens or build the trust of citizens, but instead he says, well, we have methods to keep them in check. In the second news story of today, Douglas Wise, a former Defense Intelligence Agency deputy director and one of the 51 intelligence officials who signed a letter in 2020 that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation, has recently admitted to the Australian newspaper that, quote, all of us figured that a significant portion of that content in the Hunter Biden uh, laptop had to be real. He then backtracks his statement or covers up this admission to the Australian by saying that part of Russian disinformation is that they mix truth with non-truth. So sometimes Russian disinformation does have some credible content so as not to totally make up propaganda. But the problem is, this is not what the letter that Mr. Wise and the 50 other intelligence officials signed said. The letter did not acknowledge that some of the Hunter Biden laptop information was in fact true. It turns out, by the way, that all of it was true. But instead, the letter just branded it as outright disinformation planted by a foreign adversary. And stunningly, Mr. Wise says that he does not regret signing the letter because, quote, Russians or even ill-intended conservative elements could have planted stuff in there. Yes, maybe we know that they could have planted stuff in there, but what matters is whether they did, and we know that they did not. I have the honor of being joined here today by David Leaf. He is a prominent writer, producer, and director. In fact, he's a Peabody award-winning writer and an Emmy-nominated director. He's also a professor at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, And he is a prolific biographer of the Beach Boys, and especially the star of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson. And he published this book that I have here, The Beach Boys and the California Myth, for the first time in 1978. Then he did round two in 1985, and then round three just last year in 2022. And I read the book at the recommendation of my uncle and it really, I I know it sounds corny to say, it kind of changed my life in some ways discovering the Beach Boys and becoming acquainted with their music and specifically with the story of Brian Wilson. So as I said, it really is an honor to be uh, with you here today. Thank you. Thank you. And I have to thank your uncle. Yes. Well, I I was telling you off the air that, you know, I, I said to him, 
I, I like to be a well-read, learned, informed person, but one of the things that I'm not so good at is in the realm of music. I don't know a lot of music. For instance, I'm not uh, a classical music aficionado like my uh, friend and mentor, Dennis Prager. And so one of my goals for 2022 was to buff up on music. And so my uncle knew that your your book was coming out and recommended it to me. And thanks to you, I feel like my my world has just been expanded because of the Beach Boys. Well, thank you. And, and, and certainly one of the goals of the book was, when I first wrote it, was was literally to kind of grab the world by the collar. And it's like, do you understand how important this Brian Wilson guy is? Because back then there was obviously no web. So you couldn't Google Brian Wilson and see these amazing quotes come up from Bob Dylan or from Questlove or from from Gustavo Dudamel or from Neil Young. I mean, there's just this amazing uh, world of people who look at Brian Wilson as an otherworldly creator. Mm-hmm. And and so that was part of what, what, what drew me to California to write the book. Well, I that's a nice segue into what I wanted to start the interview off with. I want to start it with you because what grabbed me, I told you this over email, but what grabbed me is just in the first few pages of the book in the introduction, you say that you were so taken with Brian Wilson that you decided to move to Los Angeles. And what was it, 1973? I moved here in, I was taken with him in in the fall of 71, and I moved here in the fall of 75. Oh, that's right, in 75. And you said in the book that you were just 36 or 48 hours into your time living in Los Angeles, and you were walking down the street in Santa Monica, and there in front of you, was it Carl Wilson? So what happened was I was here 36 hours, and I was crossing. For for those of you who want to come and look at the spot, it was at Broadway and Fifth Street in Santa Monica. I was heading north, crossing the street, and walking towards me was Dennis Wilson. the, The sex symbol, drummer, the real beach boy. He's the guy who... 60 plus years ago, came home from the beach one day and said, Brian, everybody's surfing. All Everybody at school's surfing. Why don't you write a song about surfing? He was, the, he was the impetus for the entire Beach Boys saga to happen. And, and I went up to him and I said, I introduced myself. I, I was never shy. I said, hi, Dennis. My name is David Leaf. I just moved to California to write a book about your brother, Brian. And he laughed. I, I can hear the echo of the laughter to this day. Because Brian was known, uh, he was a recluse. He was in his bedroom, supposedly. Nobody saw him. Nobody could interview him. So the idea of writing a book about him seemed, on, uh, to, to Dennis, it was ridiculous. He just laughed and he said, good luck. And he went into a building that I later found out was Brother's Studio, which was owned by, by he and Carl and Brian. And almost exactly three years to the date of that encounter, my book was in stores coast to coast. Wow. Well, I, I said to you over email, it just, what caught my attention early on was that clearly there was a divine hand in all of this. I mean, for you to move out to Los Angeles for the sole purpose of writing a biography about Brian Wilson and then to encounter a beach boy, his brother on the street, clearly something was in the works for you. Did you, did you feel that way? Well, I felt that way in 1971 when I heard Brian's... I had never heard Brian's name until I read this article in Rolling Stone. And it was, it was a two-part cover story in Rolling Stone called The Beach Boys of California Saga. And in this article, it talked about 
Brian, the Beach Boys, the abusive upbringing they had, the run of hits that they'd had in the 1960s, and this album uh, called Smile, which Brian had, had, had done a lot of work on and then had shelved. The purpose of the article was to promote a new Beach Boys album called Surf's Up. The title song of that album was from this uh, shelved album called Smile. And when I heard it, it was, I mean, how often in life do things meet, let alone exceed expectation? And I was like, oh my God, listen to that. I want to hear, I want to hear all the music that's on the shelf that was supposed to be on Smile. I need to hear that. The song before that on the album was called Till I Die. And it's one of the saddest songs you could ever hear. It's Brian Wilson, Words and Music, and he's singing about basically that he's given up on life. Mm. And it, everything about it struck me as heartbreaking. There's this beautiful music, these beautiful harmonies, all in service to this sadness. And my roommate and I became obsessed with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. And I said, something is wrong. I was studying journalism in college. I had I'd read about Edward R. Murrow, who was the landmark a CBS News journalist who had, who was the commun- who had, who had destroyed Joe McCarthy, the communist witch hunter in the 50s. And I realized from that that uh, you could actually change the narrative of the story just by telling it in a, in a certain way. And my roommate said, you, do, you, you think something's wrong? Do something about it. So I, I came up with this idea. I'm going to move to California uh, write a book about Brian Wilson, become his friend, and help him finish Smile. Uh, it would be it'd be like saying in high school, I'm the high school class president. I'm going to become president of the United States. I mean, it's just it was an absurd notion. There was no evidence. There was no reason that I could do it. Now, I, to be fair, I moved here for other reasons. I was a starving writer, and it was much cheaper to be a starving writer in in L.A. than in New York, where I grew up. Um, I wanted to write sitcoms. I wanted to write movies. I wanted to write novels. I just, I wanted to write. And so this was going to be the place where I I was going to do it. And Brian was the subject with which I was going to write my first big piece, the the thing that defined my life, really. So can you tell the story for our viewers? Of course, I know the story because I've read your book, but can you tell the story of how you first met Brian Wilson and how you became his friend? Well, it's two different stories, actually. Uh, so about seven or eight months after I met Dennis, I was, I was at the Westside YMCA shooting baskets with my friend Barry from college, and onto the court walked two guys saying, do you want to play two-on-two? One of them was Stan Love, who had just retired from the NBA. His brother was Mike Love, the lead singer of the Beach Boys. His son, Kevin Love, is an NBA superstar. And with him was Brian Wilson. And, and I'm, I'm like, okay, am I asleep? <laughs> How could this possibly be happening? And really, the entire time we were playing, playing two-on-two, I was thinking, I can't wait to tell my friends back, back in New York about this because no one's going to believe it. It's, it's an unbelievable coincidence, moment of serendipity, divine moment, whatever you want to call it, it's like, okay, there he is. He's supposed to be in his room, you know, hiding out, and I'm shooting baskets with him? How could that be? 
again, another moment of the, the divine hand and bringing mm-hmm. you to him. So did you say, did you come out and go, hey, you know, the only reason why I'm here <laughs> no. at this YMCA is because of you. No, you didn't I, want I, I him didn't, to think you were stalking him. I, I didn't. I definitely didn't want him to think I was stalking him. He's, he's a very introverted guy. He was not somebody who struck up a conversation and said, hey, after the, the game, let's go get a couple of beers. I mean, it wasn't that kind of a, a, a moment. Um, and I met him several times after that at various Beach Boys events, and, and on no occasion did I say, I want to write a book about you. Remember, from what you've read, I was the kind of person who in college, if, if there was a term paper uh, in the course, I might drop the course because that was too much work. <laughs> so, so the idea of writing a book was, was almost insane. I liked writing sports articles for record reviews, 250 to 500 words. A book seemed insurmountable. But I, through a long series of circumstances, I ended up with a book contract in 1977. And in the course of researching the book and talking to Brian's best friends, everyone who worked with him, uh, one, of the, one of his friends who was an anonymous source in the book, um, she and her roommate thought that well, he's writing a book about Brian. He should really get to spend some time with him. This woman was Brian's girlfriend. Mm. Uh, or a friend who was a woman, because nothing is traditional in the Brian Wilson story. He was married, and yes, he was seeing Debbie, but it wasn't like anything you would see in a soap opera. Uh, So they invited me over to dinner to their apartment one night when Brian was there, so I could just hang out with him, just be with him. And that's really when I got to know him a little bit, and uh, even more bizarre um, was the story of what happened uh, just before the book came out, when he just showed up at my apartment one night. That was unbelievable. Again, there were parts of the book that I was reading, and I'm like, I know that he's not making this up, but again, it just does seem too good to be true, that you would have these chance encounters with him and his brother as your entire vocation is to follow them. It, it was bizarre, surreal, unbelievable. Uh, one night, uh, a Beach Boys collector who had helped me with the book had come out from Colorado to get the collectibles that I had gathered in the course of researching the book. That was his pay for, for his help. And we'd gone out to a, a, for pizza come back to the apartment, and it was around 11, 12 o'clock at night. We're just talking, and as we always talked about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. And he said, you know, I, when I come to L.A., I always see these two guys. This is the first trip I'll never see these two guys, Rodney Bingenheimer and Harvey Kubernick. Rodney Bingenheimer is a, is a, a local, now national legend for, for being this punk DJ, Rodney on the Rock. You can hear him uh, on satellite radio. Harvey at Kubernick was the L.A. correspondent for Melody Maker magazine, which was one of the biggest British rock magazines. And he said, I'm not going to see him this time, because he was flying out early the next morning. And there's a knock at my door at 1 o'clock in the morning, and there's Rodney, and there's Harvey, and with them is Brian Wilson. Mm. And Harvey says to me, we didn't know... Now, Harvey knew I was writing this book. He says, we didn't know what to do with him, so we brought him here. And they left Brian, and they and, and they left, and Brian came in and sat down, 
and my friend and I are looking at each other like, "Is this real? Is this real?" And um, Brian says, "You got anything to eat?" <laughs> and which is a, a typical question. And fortunately, there were a couple of leftover slices of pizza, which I heated up. He he wolfed them down, took a nap on his ca- on, on my couch, and around three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, woke up and said, "Can you give me a ride home?" And what I came to understand over the years, it was a long time before I really grasped it, was that there are guardian angels in Brian Wilson's life. Linda Ronstadt was one. On this particular night, Harvey Kubernick and Rodney Bingenheimer was one. You're one. Um, it, it could be. That's true. I won't, I won't pat myself on the back with that, but I won't argue with you. Uh, certainly Debbie and her roommate Eva were, were Brian's guardian angels in the 1970s when he was adrift. He, he really, uh, Danny Hutton, his best friend. It was Danny's house. Danny is one of the lead singers of, of the group Three Dog Night, very popular vocal group, and had been Brian's friend since the mid-60s, and is Brian's best friend to this day. Mm. He, he just really is a good man. And uh, a number of years ago when I started a Brian Wilson scholarship at UCLA, he made the single biggest donation to that scholarship. That's, that's a friend. Um, he, these people looked after Brian because Brian got himself in the strangest circumstances. He might decide, oh, I've got to go to this record store and buy records. Well, they had taken his car away from him, so he took the bus, which it's hard to imagine a superstar. He takes the bus to this record store, Wallach's Music City in Hollywood, and then he's sitting at the bus stop with his little bag of records that he's bought waiting for the bus to leave, but the bus has stopped running at that hour. So somebody sees him and gives him a ride home. There was always somebody looking out for Brian. Mm-hmm. So let's turn back the clock a bit and let's start off by giving the viewers a bit of a primer on the background of Brian Wilson, because we're just kind of jumping in and we're, we're both so on the same level that he's this this musical genius, this complicated figure, but I want to share some of the insights of your book with the audience. So this actually would be a good way for me to test my my knowledge <laughs> here. So the Beach Boys were a group of five members, and, and you know throughout the, the decades that they sang, they would uh, swap people in and out as you know different people would, would leave or have circumstances that would cause them to leave. And so, but the original Beach Boys were a group of three brothers. Brian Dennis and Carl Wilson, mm-hmm. their cousin Mike Love, mm-hmm. and then their friend Al Jardine. Correct. Good. Hundred percent on that test. A and, plus. And so the the Wilson boys grew up in Hawthorne, California, and one of the things that you detail in the book is the very uh, complicated and overpowering relationship that their father Murray Wilson had with the boys, and how Murray would brutally, verbally, and physically abuse his sons. And in fact, Brian Wilson, you say, is is deaf in one ear, which is unbelievable to think about also because you say that he was he's sort of the Beethoven of his time, and, and Beethoven, of course, was deaf for much of his career. So how would you say that upbringing affected... Brian Wilson and his brothers. So uh, there are a couple of things. There is this abusive upbringing. Mm-hmm. There is also there are no Beach Boys if not for the father. 
because the father was a unsuccessful songwriter, but he had a few contacts in the music business, and those contacts led to the to the Beach Boys ultimately getting a record deal, and Murray was their publisher for the better part of a decade. Murray Wilson, we were not there. There are no, we didn't have iPhones. We don't know exactly how brutal it was. How hard was he? These kids hit. We don't know. Dennis and, and, and Brian apparently got the worst of it. But Murray also instilled in Brian two important things. One was a competitive nature. And what's often not known about Brian is that when he was in high school, he was the quarterback of Hawthorne High's football team. He was the center fielder of their baseball team. He wanted to be a baseball star. But as he, as he lamented, he says, I couldn't hit the curve. Uh, so, so this was a, a, an all-American kid outside the home, and inside the home there was indeed this abuse, but there was also a man who recognized his son's musical ability. So he turned, uh, th- the three boys shared a room when they were younger, but ultimately Murray Wilson built a music room just for Brian, and he bought him a reel-to-reel tape recorder so that Brian could create learn to create the harmonies that would become the Beach Boys. He took the Beach Boys, he, he took Brian to see his, his favorite vocal group, the four freshmen, because he knew how much he idolized them. So there's a, there's a good and there's a bad. But without Murray Wilson, none of it happens. Mm-hmm. So Brian, you say, really, you know, the, the first few years of the, the tenure of the Beach Boys had a good relationship with the the fellow members. But then things started to turn when he wanted to go in a different direction and write his album Pet Sounds, which came out in the middle of the 60s. And in that album, I mean, the song God Only Knows, which is perhaps one of the most famous songs in the world. Isn't it true that Paul McCartney said it was the greatest song ever written? That was in, that was in Pet Sounds. God Only Knows is indeed on Pet Sounds. There was... There was- when it, when it was written, the question that Brian and his collaborator Tony Escher had was, can we actually call a song God Only Knows, or will there be stations that won't play it because God is in the title? Right. And it, it actually turned out to be true. Um, it's a spectacular song. When I interviewed uh, Paul, not yet Sir Paul McCartney, for in 1990 about the album specifically, he said it's, it's, it's song make, makes him cry. Uh, in last year when I asked him, to write a, a forward for the book, he wrote. He, he emailed back. He said, "I don't have time to write a big essay." He says, "But will this do?" And he sent this beautiful quote about God only knows and the genius of Brian Wilson. And then I wrote back, "Yes, that'll do." Just yes, definitely coming from you. And 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 I the book actually opens with this this overture from from Sir Paul. Um, the, the Brian was shy and introverted um, as a performer. And touring, especially back in those days, was very difficult. Remember, in, at the end of 1966, the Beatles never toured again. It was primitive. The stage sound was horrible. And Brian only having one good ear, it was difficult for him to hear properly. He was afraid of the damage of the ear. He was also, he didn't enjoy the travel. And so he had, he had said to the boys at the end of 64, early 65, he says, look, I'm going to make the records. You go and keep you. You go on the road and tour as the Beach Boys. And Dennis Wilson, in a great quote, said, 
I'll, 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 I'll repeat it for, for a G-rated audience. We're the, Brian Wilson is the Beach Boys, were his messengers. So Dennis Wilson and Carl Wilson, his brothers, always understood and, and cherished the beauty that he brought to, to the music. The, the, the problems that he was having with Pet Sounds, which uh, was an, a full album examination of his emotional life. I, I think of it as, as emotional autobiography. The problem was, how do you sing these songs live? How do you go out and perform songs with titles like That's Not Me or, or uh, Here Today to an audience that's used to hearing Fun, Fun, Fun and I Get Around? Right. And so there was a relatability issue. Uh, Brian even released one of the songs from Pet Sounds as a solo single. So there was some concern within the group. Wait a second, are you getting ready to leave? So there was a lot of intra-group tension. There was also an issue with Capitol Records, their record company, not wanting this kind of music. Just give us more of those, give us more of those formula hits. Mm-hmm. So Brian wasn't getting the, the full support he needed in his world. In the outside world, Pet Sounds, in the music world, Pet Sounds was, was a miracle. It was like, where did this come from? If you were to ask Paul McCartney or Elton John or anybody in the last 50 years about Pet Sounds, they would go, oh my God, that's one of the greatest albums ever made. And it consistently is in polls as one or two or number three best album of all time. Um, that didn't matter at that point. What mattered was it wasn't as successful as Brian had hoped, but the next record he made was Good Vibrations, the first Beach Boys million-selling number one single. So for that moment, everything was all right in the, in the world of the Beach Boys and the record company because even though it took forever and was the most expensive record that had ever been made, it was a hit. Mm-hmm. And keep, the thing to keep in mind is it's a business. It's, it's, not, it's not the music hobby. It's the music business. So everybody in it is concerned with how do we make money. And so Brian is the golden goose. And what upset me when I read his story was that it's like it didn't seem like they were treating the golden goose very nicely. Mm-hmm. It felt like he was being exploited. And that was part of the story I wanted to tell. Because in the... The Beach Boys was started in 61, and for those first few years, there was, you know, you see this B-roll here of surfing. The whole identity of the Beach Boys was this, as you say, the California myth. Well, it was a a misidentity. Only Dennis was a real surfer. Right. They grew up here in California where we can certainly go to the beach and look at the ocean, but most of us are not surfers. I was a body surfer. I I couldn't even get up on a board. But the, the... the myth that I, that I wrote about had to do with what it's like to live in California. And that myth is actually true, especially if you're male and white. Uh, for, for most of the people in Southern California, it, it was indeed a myth that, that has all sorts of issues around it. But for the Beach Boys, it, it was the marketing tool. They didn't even want to call themselves the Beach Boys. They wanted to name the group the Pendletones after the shirts they wore. And the record company was like, no, 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 no way. And they were almost called the Surfers, which would have even limited them more. But the Beach Boys became their brand, if you will. And it wasn't a good brand for the way the music was evolving because from the very beginning, almost every album had one or two or three songs that had nothing to do 
with the Beach Boys myth, fun in the sun, cars and girls. This song called In My Room, a song called Don't Worry Baby. Um, and, and as you said, God only knows. But there's all these beautiful ballads, Please Let Me Wonder and, and, and Kiss Me Baby, that, that are Brian's emotions coming to the fore. And as long as the hits kept coming, nobody objected. Pet Sounds had two big hits on it, Sloop John B. and Wouldn't It Be Nice, but that wasn't enough to satisfy the record company. Well, what was interesting to read is that, again, in, in the 60s, the, the main identity of the Beach Boys was surrounding this, this California myth. Absolutely. But then it was Brian Wilson who wanted to take it in a different direction and, as you say, explore more sophisticated themes. Um, and, and Pet Sounds is, is really his, more of his emotion on full display because this is, this is not a, a backhand to the earlier Beach Boy songs. I, I love not at them. all. But you, you, know, you can't sustain a whole career and a whole band off of, I, I would think, just surfing songs. And and so right. Brian sort of saw, you know, was ahead of his time in seeing we've got to we, we've got to expand the repertoire here, and and allow people to feel a greater range of emotions than just these great emotions that we evoke, you know, happiness, uh, sense of adventure, hope in our California songs. We need to even go into m- more contemplative and perhaps sad songs. He was looking at the world. He was also competing with the, with the Beatles. Right. They, they were in a, can you top this competition? So when Brian heard their album, Rubber Soul, in the fall of 65, that's when he said, I'm going to make an album of all great songs like that. And that was, Pet Sounds was the result. Uh, Pet, when, the, when the Beatles heard Pet Sounds, they were like, they were stunned <laughs> by what they heard. And one of the most amazing things ever told to me uh, was by their producer, uh, Sir George Martin, he said that Sgt. Pepper, arguably the Beatles' biggest moment as, as, in terms of albums, that was our attempt to equal Pet Sounds. Not that we did, but that's how high a pedestal Brian Wilson was on at that point in 66 and, and 67 before the collapse. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to compare the earlier Beach Boys song with, with one from later. So can we hear Surfing USA, the first maybe 30 seconds or 45 seconds? If everybody had a across the USA So we hear, that's just so, ha- I mean, you just want to get up and dance listening to that song. Absolutely. And then let's, let's hear God Only Knows, which was recorded just, what, five years later? Four three, years? Three years Three. Later. And see how different it is. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. But, by the way, before, before we analyze these, 
you must have heard these songs, I, I mean, I, thousands of times. When you sit here and listen to it again, are you, are you bored of them? Do you no. find something new in them? Well, I saw your eyes. I saw the way that your eyes lit up when you were listening to them. And I thought, my gosh, again, he's probably listened to these songs more than all of us combined. Well, today I'm listening uh, to them through your eyes, mm. your ears. And uh, especially a song like God Only Knows, which has become uh, the, the, the one that people cover generation after generation. There's a, for, for those of your, your viewers or listeners who... who who like to surf the web, the BBC did a version uh, about seven years ago where they brought in generations of stars to, to do a, a multi-star version of, of God Only Knows, and it's a spectacular production. I mean, it's got Elton John and Stevie Wonder and Brian Wilson and then all sorts of people like Lana Del Rey. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing production. And it's a song that, that it, it doesn't, it's not of a time. It's, it's a song that, and it, as a love song, it's a very unusual love song because the very first line is, "I may not always love you." Right. <laughs> so right yes. off, right off the bat, it throws it throws you off kilter. It's like, wait a second, what are you saying? And then the next line is, "As long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it." Well, there are always going to be stars above us, and I guess until an asteroid hits the planet. Right. Which which Brian Wilson explored the possibility yeah. of happening because he was into numerology and, and astrology. So why? I mean, why do you think the other Beach Boys were so averse to going in that more sophisticated direction? Well, the, the Pet Sounds was was only the beginning of of of, of the intragroup struggle. Um, what came next, the Smile album, is really where where the rubber hits the road in terms of of the sophistication growing, because the the lyrics on Pet Sounds are are, are pop lyrics. Mm-hmm. Smile, heroes and villains, surfs up, cabin essence, those songs bear no resemblance to anything that had ever been on the charts before, and that's that's when the the, the problems began. And at the same time that Brian is being hailed as a genius by the rock press in England, the Beach Boys are like, what in the world is going on? And there are a lot of reasons why that album didn't come out. No one knows for sure. In my, in my film, Beautiful Dreamer, Brian gives four specific reasons as to why the, the, they didn't, the album didn't come out, why he shelved it at that time and why he was ready in, in 2004 only only 37 years after he had put it on the shelf, he's ready to share that music with with the public. And it it was it, his father had taught him loyalty. And and the Beach Boys were a family band, and Brian essentially put him, you know went on the sword of smile. He sacrificed himself to keep the Beach Boys together. You know when when you listen to God Only Knows. I mean, obviously, that's a that's a easy example because the word God is in the title. But you you see more as the Beach Boys evolve and as Brian Wilson specifically evolves that you that the songs become they sound more religious. They sound like church music. Well, you know, Brian did an album uh, in twenty twenty one called "At My Piano," where he plays his most famous hit songs. In 2021, you 2021. said? 2021. Wow, that recently. And he plays a very gentle version of these, of these hit songs. 
And what you realize is it was always church music. It was, the question was, what were the lyrics? Yes. So, so Brian finally, finally reached a point where he did not want to play to the crowd, if you will. He wanted to satisfy himself as an artist. And the lyrics, uh, you know, you, you can't... If you were to go to church on Sunday and the church organist was playing God Only Knows or In My Room or Surfer Girl or Don't Worry Baby, you would think, oh, what a beautiful hymn. And so you, know, you, you mentioned Beethoven before. Uh, I compared Brian to Beethoven in part because he always had a scowl on his face in pictures. And then as I saw the movie Amadeus, and it's like, well, no, no, no. Brian loves to have fun. He loves to laugh. Mm -hmm. He's more like Amadeus. And then I asked Brian about it. He goes, no, no, I'm like Bach. Bach, uh, that's, that's the person I relate to, he's telling me. He says, and then Bach wrote church music. And so if you think of the Beach Boys songs as hymns, we don't talk about surfing or cars or, or the California girls. We just listen to the melodies played on a church organ. He was always writing church music. And the depth of it, I think, comes in large part because of, of the painful life he's lived. Mm -hmm. it, it was, uh, it, it was, he was expressing these emotions in the music always to us, the audience, which is why we related to it with these beautiful harmonies, multi-part harmonies, but it also made him feel better. And I think that's why the music has, has survived now it's 60 years, but uh, you know, arguably he's you know, one of the most important composers of the 20th century, um, and there's no reason to think the music won't last as long as there's electricity. Mm -hmm. Well, you say that, that the reason why he's, well, there are many reasons why he's such a musical genius, is because he has this remarkable ability to pull together so many sounds and instruments, and even his voice you say, is an instrument in his songs. And that really resonated with me because if you look at some of his music, for instance, the song Love and Mercy, which I, I want to play next because it also dovetails nicely with this religious theme that we're talking about. But in, if you look at the lyrics of Love and Mercy, again, with no disrespect to Brian and by extension, no disrespect to you because I feel like I'm, you know, criticizing Brian, I'm cr criticizing you because you guys are, you know, I know how much you love him, but the, the the lyrics of love and mercy are not particularly profound. Correct. You know, the, they're they're the the first one. I'm, si I'm sitting in a crummy movie with my yes. hands on my chin. That all this violence in the world seems like we just can't win. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, but that's not exactly the most you know the lyrics that are going to it's grab not you the most. No, it's not Shakespeare. But but what you highlight is that the the way that he. He sings, again, the way that, you know, in, in the recordings that he would relentlessly try to test out the um, combination of different instruments. That is what makes his song so great. It's, it's really more of the, the, the sounds as opposed to the content of the lyrics. So let's listen to Love and Mercy, which you say it was his closing song in all of his concerts for the past, what, 20 or 30 20 years? years. Yes. Let's hear it. It's a beautiful song. I was sitting in a crummy movie with my hands on my chin. Oh, the violence that occurred seemed like we never win. Love and mercy, that's what you need to 
music. I mean, that's the most elevated, beautiful forms of church music. But the ba- I mean, the background singers and the layering, it really does sound divine. Uh, he has said things like, it's not a love song to him. It's a love song to him. I mean, he's, he, I didn't understand any of this when I wrote the first edition of the book in 1978. There's a quote from Brian talking about this album called Smile that wasn't finished where he said it's going to be a teenage symphony to God. Mm-hmm. I put those, I dutifully put that sentence in the book. But now here we are 45 years later and I understand what he meant. He, he believes, um, and, and who am I to con- contradict him, that the music is the voice of God. Um, you, were, you were talking about the lyrics. What Jimmy Webb who, who wrote the introduction to the book, one of the great songwriters of all time, said, he said, in the same way that Bob Dylan gave pop music a license to be intellectual, to, to say things that mattered, Brian Wilson gave pop music a license to express emotion. Besides, I love you and I want to hold your hand. Mm-hmm. It really was, it allowed you to bring your feelings into the music. And Brian, Brian did that very early on. Um, I, there was an interview he did in 1965 where he talks, I, I sit at the piano and I play feels. He was looking, he was always in every song looking to express a feeling. And Love and Mercy is, is a perfect example. I mean, it, it's, it was the, f- the first song of his first solo album. And I always felt the, the ending lyric is, Love and Mercy is what you need tonight. Is he saying to the to the audience that he's love and mercy tonight? I always felt he was singing to himself. Love and mercy is what I need tonight because he wrote it during a time where he had essentially been imprisoned by by a weird psychologist yes. for for nine years. He he lived unable to do what he wanted to do. Let's talk about that time in in his life because, my gosh, reading about that was just heartbreaking. For, for those who don't know, we'll, we'll give a little bit of, of a summary. I'm, I'm forgetting his last name, Eugene. Landy. Landy was a uh, psychiatrist or psychologist. He was a psychologist who was, who was known for his celebrity clientele. Mm-hmm. He had other patients as well, but, but celebrities were. And, and so his, his first wife hired him. And, uh, 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 Brian's first wife. Brian's first yes. wife hired him. And... Um, he was fired after a year by the Beach Boys. Kind of an un- unusual circumstance. If he was hired to to make Brian well, why was why were the Beach Boys fired him? Well, their reason was he was getting too involved in Beach Boys business. Fast forward to 1982, and Brian is in terrible, terrible shape. I remember seeing him in the fall of '82 and thinking, he's going to die soon, mm-hmm. and and there's nothing we can do about it. And shortly after that, uh, Landy was hired again, this time by the Beach Boys. Brian was divorced by this, by this point. And he, he indeed, indeed did keep Brian alive. He did it, though, by not making the mistake he had made the first time. He didn't want to ask anybody's permission. So, you want me to come in and do this job? Give me total control. And he took total control to the point where he and his girlfriend were writing, writing lyrics for Brian's songs where he created a, a 50-50 partnership with Brian, where he was uh, medicating Brian um, to Brian's detriment. 
and controlling every aspect of Brian's life. Brian couldn't call his friends, couldn't see anybody who he wanted to see. He had 24-7 guards filming everything Brian did. And uh, when that nine years, when, the, when those nine years finally ended, um, Brian was asked, what was it like? It was like, I was like, I was in prison for nine years. He also has said in interviews that that, that psychiatrist in some ways saved his life. I, I, so I'll, we'll give him credit for that. Right. By the uh, way, not defend it. That's like, no, no. This is not said as a defense. He yeah. was a monster. Um, he also did two things that were very ironic. One was he insisted that Brian go out on a date with the woman he had, Brian had bought a car from. And it was like bringing the Trojan horse into Troy because Melinda Ledbetter uh, became Melinda Wilson and she was the, the person who led the charge to get rid of Landy. Mm. And, and so Landy see, sowed the seeds of his own demise. He also did something that was really important. Uh, not that, that was, it was his intention artistically to do it, but Brian's solo career began while he was under Landy's control. Had Landy not been there, anything Brian would have done would have been a Beach Boys record. And Brian, that's not what Brian wanted, but he did not have what it took to stand up to them and say no, because again, ingrained in him was loyalty. This is a family band. This is a family business. You have to do what's best for the family. Mm. One of the great things about interviewing you is that you are also s such a big part of Brian Wilson's story. I mean, you really were a witness to these parts of his life that, that you write about. So if you don't mind me asking, what was that like for you as Brian Wilson's friend to, ex to experience, seeing him being taken advantage and totally controlled by this sicko psychiatrist? Did you have interactions with that psychiatrist? Did you try to bring Brian out of it? So the psychologist... Sorry, the psychologist. That's okay. I, I don't like giving him any more credit than, right. than, than he no, deserves. No. He had, there was a retired psychiatrist who he was having prescribed medication, and then he was deciding what Brian should get. Um, I was around, uh, in KGB terms, I was what Landy considered me to be a useful asset um, because he knew I, I loved Brian so much and could write so positively about him that when there was a 25th anniversary Beach Boys television special uh, and I was hired on it, um, Landy was quite happy when, when there was a press kit that needed to be written for Brian's solo album. I was hired to do that, and uh, but but at the same time, I was watching, uh, like like any uh, agent, <laughs> I was I was watching what was going on, kind of gathering evidence, if you will. Um, but it was like it was like going through life with a hissing snake just behind you and you never knew at what moment he was going to strike. So what finally do you think was the, the impetus to get that psychologist out of Brian's life? Did it come from Brian or from no, the people it, around it came him? No, it came from Melinda and, and, the, people, and the people around him. It, 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 was, it was he had taken too much control, he was taking too much money. It was a combination of, of things, a long, a long, long story, an entire book can be written by somebody else about that because it's such an ugly chapter in Brian's life um, that I gave it one chapter in, in, in this book, but it's, it's really a, an unhappy story.
uh, in, in many, many ways. Fortunately, he was freed. And once he was freed and once Melinda and, and, and he began to date again, we would double date. And it was like going out with a teenage couple, like, like, like you know, who had crushes on each other. We just had a great time. We had a lot of fun. But you guys would pay. Yes. You said in the book, because Brian Wilson was always expected to pay, so your wife demanded that you guys pay every time. My, my, my late wife understood Brian as well as anybody, and um, she knew how much it meant to him that, that someone wasn't taking advantage of him, even just a dinner check. He didn't, it made no difference in his lifestyle if he had paid for dinner, but he got such a kick out of not having to pay. Mm -hmm. he, it was like a, a little kid, oh, I don't have to pay? I mean, it was just, it, was re it really made him happy. So what, what is it or was it about Brian Wilson that made him be so taken advantage of by the people around him? I mean, between his father and then his fellow bandmates and then this psychologist, I was about to say psychiatrist, psychologist. He, he what is, is it about him? He's this beautifully childlike, genius um, creator who's plopped in the middle of, of, of madness, surrounded by greed, drugs, um, and... Whatever abilities he had in the studio to control his music, um, he lost, at some point in his life, he lost the ability to control it. He wrote a song called Hang On To Your Ego in 1966 for Pet Sounds, and one of the band members insisted on changing the title. It didn't, he didn't like that title. He says, hang on to your ego. What, 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 this, this sneer was, this, is, this Pet Sounds is Brian's ego music. Hang on to your ego. I think had something to do with LSD. But uh, when when Brian shelved Smile, his musical abilities were still intact. He started working with another group called Redwood, and the Beach Boys came to the studio and said to him, "You're either going to work with us, or you're not going to work at all." He he was not given the freedom, and he didn't have whatever it would take to stand up to that. And so the family loyalty came first. It's almost like the godfather. You're loyal to the family first. And that came from his father. They, they all, in their own ways, sacrificed their lives to be Beach Boys for the fame and fortune that came with it. So when Brian turned to LSD and other drugs in the 60s, you know, this was before, obviously, that horrible, horrible man came into his life. What was it that you think Brian was trying to access or want to run away from? Was it primarily the, the abuse that he suffered from his father or the pressure that he put on himself? Well, when he, when he took LSD, it was legal. It was, it was what cool people did. When he smoked pot, it wasn't legal, but it was what cool people did. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the Beatles album, Rubber Soul, you know, they talk about that being their pot album. Um, so he was just... He was the leader of the L.A. music scene, and so he was. He was. He was. He was. The cool people are smoking pot. Okay, let me smoke pot, and that was. That was not okay with his father. Terrified his father. His father was, you know, very old school. Drug, drugs, you know, the whole. We could talk for ten hours about the drug problems of America, uh, 
Brian took LSD as a searcher. It's, I understand, and that's what a lot of people were doing in the mid-60s. They were taking it to, to, to discover things about themselves. The, fir the first song Brian wrote when he, after his first LSD trip, he went to the piano and he wrote California Girls. I know. That's, what, that's what's so hard about, you know, talking about drugs and creativity because, the, you know, Brian said in an interview that he pays dues every day for the, the time in his life when he used drugs heavily. But it also facilitated enormous creativity and introspection. Yes, absolutely. Do you think he still would have been able to achieve that without the drugs? I don't think so. I don't, I don't know it's that he was going answer. in that direction. Yeah. I, I, there's no way to know. But, but the fact that he engaged Van Dyke Parks as his lyricist uh, was indicative that he was looking to express things that were, were beyond ordinary consciousness, which, is, which would be what LSD would be. So I mentioned to you before we started this program, I'm glad you just just brought up Van Dyke Parks because I was rereading the last part of your book this morning just to, to refresh my memory on some things. And I came across this line that you had that I had somehow skimmed over in my first round of reading the book where you said, and you can see that I just learned the song today because I'm forgetting the name, or, Orange um, Canvas. Orange, orange Crate Art. Crate Art. Mr. Leaf wrote in his book that this song, that, that, or this album that, that Brian Wilson put together with uh, Van Dyke Parks in the 90s was one of Brian's best work in the past half century. And so when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to look it up and see what it is. And the song just blew me away. And I want to play it right now because I think that it... it highlights what you said really well about how he's trying to, to reach another level of, of consciousness. Because if you listen to the music, even in the first 20 seconds, the amount of the kind of emotional roller coaster it takes you on is unexpected, but quite profound and memorable. Okay, I'll shut up. Let's just hear the music. myself to be quiet going into that because nothing can you know no way that that I or you could describe it can capture the feeling that one has listening to it the, the, there's a otherworldly quali quality to yes. Brian's voice and the harmonies he creates when the Beach Boys started out the technology was such that they would all gather around the microphone and sing together at once by the time Brian recorded his first solo album in Orange Crate Art there might be 32 or 64 tracks in the studio. So he could go out and, and say to the, uh, the engineer, okay, give me, give me 16 tracks. And he would, one after another, just sing 
the part and then double it and triple it and quadruple it, seeing the harmony parts all by himself because they were all in his head. And that kind of genius comes from making music the, the thing that matters the most in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's really the takeaway. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing to say for someone who wants people to read and buy, their, buy a book, but Brian believes music is the voice of God. Now, so you can listen to his music and you will get his story from the very beginning. So do you need to read about it? Well, I think so. <laughs> but, but, but you can just listen and, and glory in, in the sounds that he's created. He's in touch with a spirituality in his music that, I mean, when he talks about making pet sounds, he talked about we had prayer sessions before we mm-hmm. recorded it. When Brian went on tour, he and his bandmates would gather in a circle and hold hands and they would say a prayer before the concert. They would end the concert with love and mercy and then bow very gently to the audience. The, the first, the Brian, Brian and the Beach Boys recorded a version of the Lord's Prayer. When Brian created the Smile album, the opening song on it is called Our Prayer, a composition that Brian wrote. It's just an a cappella piece that sounds like church music. So whatever Beach Boys' greatest hits album you have in your, in your Spotify list or what, it's, it's not enough. You, you, there's a, there's a, an artist here to dig into a, a story and a music that's, that's, that's it's beyond belief. If I hadn't lived it, I, I wouldn't believe it. You asked me what was it like to go through all of those years with him. It was a roller coaster. You used that phrase before. Brian is, is, is the sweetest guy in the world. Uh, doesn't have a mean bone in his body. Doesn't have an ironic bone in his body. Um, but it doesn't mean he doesn't get angry at his life and his circumstances sometimes. Um, but what was more fun than just riding in the car and singing along to the radio with Brian Wilson? <laughs> what more could one have asked for if in 1971 it's like, i got to move to California? Mm-hmm. So it, it really... Um, it really changed me in many, many ways. It made me, um, I will not say formally religious, but a, certainly uh, I have to be a believer that, that all of these things didn't just happen by, by, some, by coincidence, that, that I was set on a path um, that somebody, not necessarily pulling my strings, but at least pointing me in the right direction, do this, you've got to do this. What was driving me? Well, some, some psychiatrist could maybe figure that out. But I know that when it came to the music, it was like this man has made the most beautiful music that speaks to me. I've got to go do something to repay him. Why did it speak to you? It spoke to me because, because of the time I, I, I... Well, in the 60s when I heard it was just hit radio. It was just it was another hit on the radio. When, when I first became obsessed with Brian Wilson in 1971, it was during a very, very contentious time in, in, in America. And there was so much anger. I, I went to George Washington University in, in Washington, D.C. My, my dorm was just a few blocks from the White House. And I, I like to sort of joke, we got tear gassed whether we wanted to or not. There were all these anti-war demonstrations starting in 1969 when I was a student. And there was so much 
anger. I mean, and, and then I hear this music, and it was the exact opposite, the pure beauty of it. It was like going to church. So Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, their music became my secular church. And in, in that regard, um, you don't need to analyze it. You just need to listen to it. Because the purity of the harmony and the, and the brilliance of the melody, it, it, if it doesn't speak to you, then I have to say I'm sorry, be, because it, it, it speaks to me. One of the things that I think people my age lack, and by the way, I'm not wagging my finger. I, part of the reason why I purchased this book is because I wanted to remedy this in myself. I think that many of us lack the emotional sophistication to appreciate music like Beach Boys music or Brian Wilson music or the Beatles or classical music. The music that many of us are drawn to, again, my, myself included for, for most of my life, is rap music or pop music. And Not that there's anything wrong with, with listening to, to that on occasion or however frequently you want, but the, you know, the, the sense of uh, emotional depth and sophistication that you get from listening to I'm going to say it correctly, Orange Crate Art, compared to listening to a Lil Wayne song. You know, it, it, you, you, can't, you can't even compare it. Well, it's, it's what you... First, popular music is popular because it speaks to the times. Right. So the question is, what is going to survive the times? What music will become classical music? So the Beatles and Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys and other music from the 60s is now classical music. The same way jazz is now classical music. It has survived the time. Music, music essentially, popular music, is for people to dance to. That's, that's why it exists. That's why it's popular. And so Brian Wilson made records you could dance to, uh, like Fun, Fun, Fun and, and, and Surfing USA. But that wasn't, that wasn't who he was. That wasn't, he was. If you look at pictures of him from high school, he's just such a shy guy. Mm. So he's making this music that speaks to the heavens. And um, I don't know that I was emotionally sophisticated when I was a teenager or, or even in my early 20s when I, when I became obsessed with his music. But I, but I knew it touched me in a way that nothing else did. And... We give lots of words to that. It's holy. It's God. I mean, whatever, whatever, however you want to phrase it, when something touches you that deeply, that profoundly, uh, a you're ready for it, and uh, and and b you must need it. So, so when you heard Orange Crate Art driving here today to the studio, and it connected with you, well, I hope it it takes you down a long path of. Of, of a Brian Wilson obsession because there's there's so much in just his career, but there's dozens of other artists who have worked in a similar vein of harmony, who don't necessarily get the same kind of recognition, because people like a snarl in their pop music. They want right. They, they want something that's angry. Mm-hmm. Perhaps emotional sophistication is is not quite the right term, but I. You know, maybe as a twenty-something-year-old, when you were listening to Brian Wilson for the first time, you didn't—you didn't have the emotional sophistication that you had now. But you—you you heard the music and you allowed your yourself to explore whatever range of emotions it evoked. I don't know if if people my age are as willing to do that. I don't think we want, we we are as curious 
to explore, as I said, all the range of emotions that we possess. I think we, we sort of crave shallow emotions being expressed in our music. I, I, that I can't speak to because, you know, I, I'm, as a professor at the Herb Alpert School of Music, uh, the students who come into my class are very, classes are very sophisticated. And I'm not teaching, I'm not teaching contemporary music. I'm teaching 20th century music right. primarily. And, and they come in knowing it. They've heard it from their grandparents and their parents. They want to know the story behind it. They want to know, they want to know more because they like the music that much. Or they're just looking for an easy elective to take and get a good grade, but but uh, <laughs> the, the, I don't know that I don't know that I have a sophisticated ear. Um, I couldn't. You could play Schubert and Schumann, and I'm not sure that I could tell you which was which. In fact, I know I couldn't. But when I listen to Mozart and Beethoven and Bach and and, and the all-time greats, when I listen to George Gershwin and Duke Ellington, it just hits me. And, and maybe it's because of my upbringing, and that kind of music was on the television when I was younger. Um, but uh, I know that my ear was open when I was in college to lots of different kinds of music. And it, it's harder, you know, I can look back and I can point to exactly when I fell in love with various groups and went down the rabbit hole of, I've got to hear everything they've ever done. It's harder and harder to do that because in a sense, my musical hard drive is full, mm. so there's less room for something some, for something new to break through. It has to be spectacular. That's just me. Um, but but something like Brian Wilson, I have students come to my Beatles class, and, and you know, the first day, uh, professor, are we going to talk about the rivalry between the, the Beatles and Brian Wilson? <laughs> and I said, I, well, I wasn't planning on it this quarter, but we're sure we can talk about that. So they're very smart and sophisticated, but I can't speak to, to popular music in general. I've, it's, it, I've lost the thread of it. I was going to say, ask you, are, are there any new artists or new songs that you think can be compared to, to Brian's music? I don't know. Or, that, I don't, I don't know or anybody, Beatles music. I don't know that there's anybody writing that kind of music today because mu music evolves and it changes. If we think of music 150 years ago, it was essentially all melody with a little rhythm. And now popular music today is mostly rhythm with a little bit of me melody. There are exceptions, Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift and, and a bunch of other people we could talk about. But, but I don't it's hard to know what's going to last mm -hmm. because for the most part what lasts is the music you loved when you were you, you were young and dating and falling in love and and all of that and so there are all these artists on the road today who are what they call legacy artists who do their hits that were hits 20 years ago 30 years ago 40 years ago 50 years ago i, I don't know how many of those are going to matter when when the audience and the bands themselves are, are all dead and buried, um, there there are so many things that you know. I, my my work has focused uh, in large part on what I call the killer bees, the the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and the Bee Gees. <laughs> Music full of melody and harmony. Yeah. That's that's what made me feel good. That's what made me happy, and. So I'm not going to criticize what what people are listening to. It's just that there's another kind of music to listen to, and and 
a big part of my mission in writing about Brian was don't think of the Beach Boys image. That's a silly image that was concocted 60 years ago. It's got nothing to do with the music. The music is, is the greatest music of its time. And, and so listen to it without, without you know, thinking of the brand of the band. Think, think of it just as music. It is sort of a stereotype that the best and most creative artists are depressed. Do you think that there's any, you know, you, I was asking you earlier about drugs and facilitating creativity, and I thought your answer was, was quite honest, that, that Brian may not have been able to, to write the, the great hits that he did if he had not taken those drugs. Not, it's, he, he, I think drugs moved him to another level. In, right. ter- in terms of great, great artists of my time, um, most of them have lived very complicated, often unhappy lives. Do you think that that's sadly necessary to un- unlock the the depth of emotion that that is uh, for Brian, in for, the songs? For for Brian, it certainly was. I think you know a notable exception is Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. Sir, Sir Paul has lived now in the public eye, going on sixty years, and he has done it in a remarkable, remarkable way. He had a beautiful first marriage that that unfortunately, you know, his, his wife died of cancer young and. And he he remains the Paul McCartney we would want him to be. Uh, is he a human being? Sure. Are there are there times where you wouldn't want to hear him talking to an employee? Yes. But it's, he he is there, there's there's not a long list of oh yes that was my cocaine period or that was my this. right. You talk to just about anybody else and oh, yeah, that's a yeah, that was a bad time for me. Oh, I got too heavy into drugs or I was you know. A sexual, you know, you know, why why do people get into rock and roll music? When John Lennon was asked, he he used a British colloquialism to pull birds, which meant to get girls. He saw Elvis on a movie screen, and he saw the girls screaming. He said, "That looks like a pretty good job." He that's what they wanted to be, and that's a lot of reason people get up on stage. That's a lot of people. A lot of reason people go into the movies or or or, or theaters, actors and actresses. Um, music is a different thing. Music is is I, I I don't know whether this is my sentence or someone else, but it's the people who write music. It's like God whispers, and they're the people who hear it. And it, it they could be in Oklahoma. They could be in Liverpool, they could be in Los Angeles, they could be in New York, they could be in Australia. There's no way of knowing where those people are going to be who, who, ha- who are tuned in to that special frequency. There's no way of knowing what kind of life they're going to lead because when they hear it, they're, they're kind of already formed as people based on their upbringing. Mm-hmm. Brian, Brian's an interesting case. Uh, he heard a song called, uh, a piece of musical, Rhapsody in Blue, when he was very, very young. So George Gershwin writes this magnificent piece of music, unlike anything he had done as a, as a, as a hit songwriter, if you will. And Brian hears this as a... It's hard to know whether he was two years old or one year old or three year old, and it connects with him. Why did that piece of music, Rhapsody in Blue, I mean, it's, it's beautiful, but there are passages of it that are very sad. What spoke to him in that music? 
and what happened in his life in the next 20 years that he was kind of building up uh, inside of him that he needed to express through music. And uh, great artists do not seem to make, do not seem to have happy lives. Brian has said, I know that my purpose on this planet is to make music that makes people happy. He didn't say my purpose on this planet is to live a happy life. And so he's had quite a, quite a lot of ups and downs. He has ups and downs on a daily basis. Uh, it's, 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 he's a fascinating person to have gotten to know and to be able to call him a friend is, a, is an honor and a privilege. But there are days where, uh, there were certainly days where no, I don't feel like doing anything, I don't feel like seeing anybody. I mean, he's, 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 he has suffered from depression for decades. How and some he, of his great songs have come out of that. How is he doing now? He's, he's hanging in there. He'll turn 81 this year. I mean, if 40 years ago, if you'd said Brian Wilson's going to, you know, going to make it to 80, uh, and in, and have a solo career with with more than 15 albums, and you're going to make a film about him, and you're going to make a, an all-star tribute at Radio City for him, uh, it'll be ridiculous. I mean, he 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 is one of the great redemption stories of 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 our times of popular culture. He's somebody who was counted out repeatedly, and through the critical mass of love and mercy, he came back. Uh, I remember him doing an interview, I think it was 1995. It was right after he, he had recorded Orange Crate Art. He had just made a docu- documentary, wonderful film called I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. Mm-hmm. Think about that title, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. That was a song one of, in Pet Sounds. Oh, Pet Sounds song. You've done your homework very well. <laughs> and... He was being interviewed. Now, Brian typically doesn't give long answers. And, and the interviewer says, why are you so active right now? What's, what's happened? You mean he was mo- moving about in his chair? Or? Well, no, no, no. He was, he, he's got a new album and a oh, new movie. Oh, active professionally. Uh, active professionally. And, 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 and uh, Brian said, I have emotional security. Yeah. Now, what that means to me, if he were to continue, is if I don't have emotional security, I can't do anything. Why did he have emotional security? Because he had Melinda and and his friends. So without that emotional security, he was trapped in depression. With it, with our endless encouragement and love and support and friendship, he rose to heights that were unimagined so that he was willing in, in 2004 to present this Smile album to the world. Brian Wilson presents Smile as, as, as one of his best friends said in my documentary, the longest gestation period in history. The guy gets pregnant with this music in, 1930, in 1966 and releases it in 2004. It's, it's, a, it's a story unlike anything else that, that, that one can think of. It's, he just has tremendous internal strength to survive the travails that he lived through and the willpower to conquer everything, and despite, he hears voices in his head, despite that, he's willing to go out and give us music. He's willing to go on a stage and sing and, and give his music to the world. I mean, it's really, it's a series, an endless series of miracles. How does he view his life? Does he view it as a, a tragedy, a triumph, a mix? Now that he's close to the end, 
how how does he how does he look back and and think of it? I don't I don't I don't know that he's retrospective in that regard. I think he's more like, what are we having for dinner tonight? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's I've said it, you know, for years. Music and food were like one and one A in terms of his two favorite things, and then making people laugh, you know, and laughing were were right there with it, and then food surpassed music. Um, his 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 dear friend Debbie in 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 the in the, in the uh, in one of the new chapters in the book said something horrible was happening, and he said, "Well, Debbie, you know, no matter what goes wrong, there's." Always something to eat. <laughs> so he loves he loves to eat. Um, so he's I don't know that he's looking down the road. Okay, I'm 80. I'm going to be 81. If I if, you know take good care of myself, I've got another X number of years. What do I want to accomplish? Mm-hmm. He, I don't think I don't think that's the way he thinks. Right. That's I know that's the way I think. It's like I, I I'm not going to spend time on a project that isn't important. Because it just takes too long to do anything. Uh, to get anything done that's meaningful takes a tremendous amount of dedication. But w- with him, it's like, I just want to make music and give it to the world. And uh, he's got a lot of unfinished songs that I hope someday we'll get to hear and, and maybe a new album. And Wow, so he's still, he's still at it. He's st- oh, yeah. No, he's still Brian Wilson. He's 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 it's in, inside him. It's still Brian Wilson. He doesn't necessarily show it. He's he's not he's not somebody who walks on stage and hey everybody great to see you. That's that's not him. He's not he's not a showman in that regard. Um, but he loves the sound of music. He loves hearing his music played beautifully. He loves the audience's reaction to his music. He loves a good room service steak. Uh, so touring is, a, is something he loves to do. Don't I don't know if he will or not, but but he just it's a day to day thing. I, I think that's he lives more day to day than anybody I know. And finally, what is if you could name one of his songs that you think has touched you the most? Which one would it be? The song that touched me the most, I, I think, is "Till I Die," because when I heard it in 1971. It was, it was like a call to arms, a call to action. I heard this song. It's a beautiful, beautiful, heartbreaking song. It's like a song like In My Room, except it's, the lyrics are of somebody who has given up on life. I'm a cork on the ocean floating over the raging sea. I'm a leaf on a windy day. Pretty soon I'll be blown away. I mean, it's a terribly sad song with a beautiful melody and beautiful harmonies. All done by Brian, mm-hmm. the lyrics, the, the music and lyrics. And when I heard it, what it said to me was wh- a couple things. Why, is, why has he given up on life? And two, he can still do it. He still has the magic to make music. So maybe if I go out there, I can help him do that. I mean, again, who was I? I was just... I was just uh, you know, a Beach Boys fan, who 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 took it upon himself, who heard in that music a call, and 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 went on and embarked on this mission, that is now, it's it's now, f- fifty two years. 
Well, you're being modest to not say this, but I will say it for you. You have been one of the biggest reasons why Brian Wilson's career has persisted. And I know that you are one of the, the principal motivations for him finishing Smile after all those decades. So you have certainly one of, been one of Brian Wilson's guardian angels. Well, thank you. I, 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 I've learned to say thank you. <laughs> um, I, I know that working with him, um, working for him, and just being his friend uh, w- was extraordinarily meaningful for me. And, and I know for sure it, it, it created moments in his life that were, were high, highlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with my, my dear friend Chip Racklin and, and Phil Ramone, we produced a tribute to Brian Wilson at Radio City Music Hall. One of the things about celebrity that you're going to understand as you get older is that people will tell you how great you are because they want something from you. And in Brian's life, people were always saying things like, oh, you know, I was just talking to Paul McCartney, and he loves your album. And, mm. you, and you learn to ignore it. It's all background chatter. But 40 years after hearing, or, I'm sorry, 30 years after hearing Till I Die at Radio City Music Hall, we put on a tribute to Brian. And he sat in the wings on the side of the stage, and he could not deny what was happening in front of his eyes when Paul Simon and Elton John and Billy Joel and Jimmy Webb and David Crosby and Carly Simon and Ann and Nancy Wilson from Heart and his daughters Carney and Wendy Wilson and Wilson Phillips and and, and a whole host of others were there to pay tribute to him that Sir George Martin flew from London to give a speech about how important Brian was in music and to the Beatles. He couldn't deny what was happening in front of him. And so I know giving him that I, I, get, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. it. It was a highlight for him. It was a highlight for me. It was a turning point in his life and career. And so I, 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 I'll, I'll accept what you said. Thank you. Thank you for bring, bringing Brian Wilson into my life through your book. And I encourage all of you to consider purchasing it. It is God Only Knows, Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and The California Myth. And if you buy the 2022 edition, you will also be able to read the, the 78 and the 85 editions. And it's, it's so fun to see the, the way that, that his story grows and the way that you, the author, become more a part of it. Well, the, the original book is written as an outsider looking in. Yes. The, the, now I'm the elder statesman looking back on, on the journey that he and I went on together. And it's, and it's a story you can't get anywhere else. It's, it's two books in one. The, the, the update is actually more than half the length of the original book. And it, so it's an enormous update. It's not just like, here's, here's a, few, a few more thoughts. Um, you can't get these stories anywhere else, and and some of them are hilarious, and some of them are sad. Yes, they but, are. But 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 um, they, they they the the reason the book is called God Only Knows is a because it's the song you're going to dance to at your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I told David that in an email exchange. My my husband doesn't even know yet. I don't even know who my husband is, but he sure as hell doesn't even know that, that this is what we're dancing to. So, Go on. so the title of the book, God Only Knows, I chose it because it's arguably the greatest song Brian yes. ever wrote and yes. one of the greatest songs ever written. But it's also very often the answer um, to the question because there, there's an unknowable quality to the story. There's an unknowable quality to any spiritual story. And the answer, question, people ask me questions. Why did this happen and why did that happen? And very often I have to say God only knows. 
And that's, that's really what this book is about, is me coming up with as many answers as I can for, for, for those who, who love uh, the music and, and this, this beautiful story of, of, of the love and mercy that Brian finally did get mm-hmm. so he could, he could uh, have, have a second act and, and a beautiful uh, second career. Thank you so much, David, for coming on to the program. And please tell Brian how much we here at Timeless admire him and appreciate his work. And we certainly appreciate yours. Well, thank you. And, and Timeless couldn't be a better title for the show when, in regard to Brian Wilson. Yes. Thank Indeed. you. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, each of our thoughts, choices, and actions shape who we are. So let's think clearly, choose wisely, and act with principle and determination. See you soon.